In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Our text for consideration today is the Holy Gospel, which I've already read. We have finally stepped onto the battlefield of Lent. I like to think of Lent this way because there is a strong theme of spiritual warfare that runs through these Sundays. The first three Sundays, which kick off today, finds Jesus locked in combat with the devil. The fourth Sunday in Lent finds Jesus prevailing over the forces of scarcity. And the fifth Sunday in Lent finds Jesus in a battle with his theological opponents who seek to crucify him. Jesus is doing the fighting for us. He is our champion who steps onto the field against our Goliath. But now is not the time to relax and to let down your guard. By virtue of your baptism into Christ, Jesus brings you into this battle too. And so, as St. Peter says, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Today, the battle is joined head-on. Our Old Testament reading is a really good contrasting picture of the battle that we see in our gospel text. It is also the first battle in the war between heaven and hell that the Bible portrays for us. So let's highlight a couple of the pertinent details. First, by way of context, when, Adam had, when God had created Adam and placed him in the garden, he withheld nothing from Adam except... He was not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Eve calls it the tree that's in the midst of the garden. But why? Why withhold that one tree? Well, this was the worship that God had prescribed for his people. By refraining from eating from that tree, Adam and Eve demonstrated their love for God. By the way, this shows us how we ought to think about our obedience to God with regards to the commandments. When we seek to keep the commandments, we are showing God by our lives that we do, in fact, love him. That's the fear, love, the love aspect of fear, love, and trust from our catechism. Recall the sheep and the goats from the judgment scene in Matthew 25. The sheep show their love for Christ by loving their neighbors. That is, by keeping the second table of the law, visiting when they're sick or in prison and giving them food to eat and so on and so forth. But, anyway, that aside, back to Genesis. Satan tells Eve that she will become like God, knowing good and evil, if she would just eat of this forbidden fruit. But are the devil's promises that he makes to Adam and Eve, are they genuine? Well, let's start with, you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Satan's promise was one of being like God. But how had God made our first parents? God says, let us make man in our image, after our likeness. Adam and Eve were already like God. They were created to live forever. They were holy and righteous on their own. How much more like God can you get? But perhaps being like God was meant to be found in the knowing of good and evil. After all, Eve believed that eating the fruit would make her wise. 
So here's a question for the parents in the room. Would you teach your children how bad drugs are by teaching them how to use drugs and learning from the bad effects of them? Of course you wouldn't. You would not teach your children evil by exposing them to it. The devil also sort of soft pedals the holiness of God. He says, you will not surely die, except what had God said would happen when they would eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. In the day you eat of it, you will surely die. And so the devil's false promises, his lies, brought death into what was an undying world. But Christ, the second Adam, stepped onto the battlefield both as our example and as our champion. It appears that the devil is under the impression that this man would be no different than any other, that all of his old temptations would work. And so he begins, as he did with Adam, by suddenly attacking Jesus' identity. He says not once but twice in the first two temptations, if you are the Son of God. But what had Christ heard at his baptism just a few verses before this text? He heard God say from heaven, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Adam was made to be like God. But Jesus was even more than that. He is God in the flesh. It is rather interesting that Jesus doesn't take up the cause of trying to defend his own sonship. He just lets the word of God stand. Now, then, what we traditionally refer to as the first temptation, the temptation to turn the, the stones into loaves of bread. Since Jesus had been fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, Matthew tells us, he was hungry, which is the understatement of the millennium. Jesus However, reminds the devil who is in charge here. He says, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus refers Satan back to the scriptures to show us that God is the one who provides for his people. Just like the false promises that the devil made to Adam in the garden, this is the lie that this is the lie the devil puts before Jesus. Stones are not fit for human consumption, and neither was the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We should note well here that when Jesus miraculously feeds people in the New Testament, he doesn't do so by turning something that is not food into something that becomes food. So consider the feeding of the 5,000 and the feeding of the 4,000. How does he do it? He simply multiplies the bread that's already there and the fish that's already there so that there's enough to eat. Even when he changes the water into wine at his first miracle at the wedding feast at Cana, Jesus is simply speeding up the natural process of what would happen to water that is absorbed through the vines of a, of a grapevine and then put into the fruit that's eventually made into wine. Jesus Food and drink that he places before his people is genuine food. It's not stones that are simply turned to bread. The second temptation, likewise, is a lie. 
It is cleverly disguised by the scriptures, but it is a lie nonetheless. Satan tells Jesus that he should simply throw himself down from the temple because God had promised to send his angels to keep him from striking his foot against a stone. That's from Psalm 91, by the way. The devil quotes that scripture. However, the devil leaves out some important words from that promise. The devil says, and this is exactly what he says in Matthew. He says, he will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. The full quote from Psalm 91, which we said together as our, as our uh, gradual for today, goes like this. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. God promises to guard us in paths of godliness, not in living how we see fit. So if I were to choose to drink and drive, then God is not necessarily promising to me that he's going to prevent me from getting a ticket or getting into an accident. But this kind of lie is even more pernicious than that, because it's very common. False preachers cover their lies with the Bible all the time. Prosperity preachers will tell you that if you are sick or that if you don't have enough money or whatever it is that you think you might need to live your lives, you just need to believe harder. They lay that burden at your feet. God wants to give it to you, but you don't believe it enough to receive it. They'll cite words from Jesus, like those in John 10, where he says, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly, and say, well, this means that God wants us to be healthy, wealthy, and wise. But what these false prophets neglect to tell you is that these words are ripped out of the context of the scriptures so that they can be manipulated to mean something quite different than what is actually said. Yes, the devil can and does quote scripture, but he uses it to give his lies a godly sheen. So what does this mean for us? Well, this means that we as Christian people must know what the Bible says, lest we easily be deluded into following after a false savior. The last temptation that the devil puts before Jesus is the power and the majesty of the kingdoms of the world. He offers them to Jesus if Jesus would simply bow down and worship him. Again, is this a genuine promise? Well, in one sense, the devil is, in fact, the prince of this world. We actually sang that in a mighty fortress a few minutes ago. This world's prince may still scowl fierce as he will. But in the truest sense, the devil is nothing but a usurper. He is a pretender to the throne. Jesus is already Lord of all, and he will not even acknowledge the devil's claim by worshiping him. Dear friends, this last temptation is a danger to us too. Children are told from a young age that they can do whatever they want to do when they grow up, as long as they work hard enough at it. 
This rewards hard work, certainly. But our sinful nature has a habit of pushing things beyond the limits that God has set for us. Again, how much money and time do we pour into things like youth sports? Well, what if Johnny can get a scholarship? Or what if he can make it to the big leagues? Well, the odds of that really are rather astronomical. According to the NCAA's own statistics, less than 2% of all high school athletes get a scholarship to play college sports. But going from college to pro is even harder than that. Of all of those athletes, only 2% of them go on to play professional sports. Oh, but what if I enroll Johnny in travel baseball and he misses some Sundays? He'll be the one that makes it. I know he will. But this kind of lying is, is not even limited to sports. We chase colleges and careers like this too. How many of us, when we're thinking of college, either for ourselves or for our children, ask, is there a faithful Lutheran pastor where my, where my school is at? Or... Do we ask ourselves when we, get, when we consider job offers, is there a faithful Lutheran pastor who is there for me? Well, if you don't know the answers to those questions, I can certainly help you. But you need to ask those questions so that you actually know the answers to them. Jesus asks us, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world but forfeits his soul? Jesus, with these words, reminds us that our eternal state is far greater and far more important than anything that the devil or the world can offer to us. Dear friends in Christ, Jesus shows us how we might contend with questions regarding our bodily and spiritual needs. He says, it is written. That means that we should look to God's word where these answers are written for us. He is our example in how we avoid buying hook, line, and sinker into the devil's false promises. But even more so, our Jesus is our champion. Jesus suffered lack and the assaults of the devil in order to overcome him for us. We will pray in the litany here as our prayers in just a few minutes. By your baptism, fasting, and temptation, help us, good Lord. Dear friends in Christ, here, Jesus goes toe-to-toe with our most ancient enemy, the devil himself, and he casts him out from our midst with his word. Here he unmasks the promises of the devil as counterfeit and empty, and bids us see the true and great promises that God has made to us in the flesh and blood of his son, Jesus. While the devil wants us to think that our suffering is a wicked thing, here, by his own suffering, Jesus shows us that the way of the cross is the way of our eternal salvation. In Jesus' name. And now the peace of God, which passes all understanding, keep your hearts and minds through faith in Christ Jesus our Lord.